Uh, Tonight we're going to be studying about another of God's attributes, his grace. And God's grace is such an immense subject, and much has been written on it. And so I feel bad to a certain extent because I'm only able to cover just a few precious nuggets. So um, we're going to have to dig for ourselves to discover the rest. Um, Tonight in our study, I'd like us to consider three questions about God's grace. First of all, what is God's grace? Secondly, what does God's grace do for us? And thirdly, how is God's grace evidenced in our lives? But before we uh, get into our study, let's uh, come before the Lord and pray. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' mighty name, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for this study on your grace, Lord, your unmerited favor, Father, your blessings that you so abundantly bestow upon us. Father, help us to um, be mindful of your presence tonight, Lord. Help us to set aside any worries or uh, fears or whatever, Lord, and just drink in your word. Father, help us to appreciate your grace and all that you do for us all the time. So be with us now, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to your word, Father. Change us. Help us to be more like Jesus, in Jesus' name. So as we begin our study, let's first look at what is God's grace. There are many definitions for grace. For example, someone uh, tried to describe it using an acronym, you know, G-R-A-C-E, which could stand for great riches at Christ's expense. But the most common definition is grace is God's unmerited favor. And A.W. Tozer expanded on this definition by noting that grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. You know, grace is not merely um, unmerited favor. It is a favor that's bestowed on sinners who deserve wrath. You know, showing kindness to a stranger is unmerited favor. But doing good to one's enemies is more in the spirit of grace. Pastor Chuck Smith, in contrasting grace, mercy, and justice, said, I see that justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. And grace is getting what I don't deserve. I don't deserve the blessing that God bestows daily on my life. Another illustration, and one which I really like, described it this way. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's called a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's called a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that's called an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a good picture of God's unmerited 
favor. That's what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. So we can see that grace indeed is unmerited favor. It's God's favor or his kindness and his blessing shown to a person without any regard to their worth or merit. You know, grace has no requirements, does not expect any payment in return. And it's given in spite of what that same person deserves. It is truly a free gift from God. Now, the attribute of grace is a part of God's character, and it's always been a part of his character because God, among other things, is gracious. Yahweh, in Exodus 34, 6, declared himself, declared of himself that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God is, was, and always will be a God of grace. And because of his goodness and kindness and mercy, God delights in bestowing his blessings upon his children and upon non-believers as well. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verses 44 to 45, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And we see God's grace throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, God's grace is described by the Hebrew word hesed, which speaks of God's love for mankind and of his special love for his people, Israel. It also speaks of deliverance from enemies, affliction, or adversity. It also denotes enablement, daily guidance, forgiveness, and preservation. God's grace is declared in many passages in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 6-8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Exodus 33:17, God told Moses, You have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Psalm 86:15 declares, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And Psalm 116:5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. And we see God's grace at work as he um, sent Moses to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. And even afterwards, God led them out and protected them and provided for all their needs on their journey to the promised land. And this redemption of the Israelites did not happen because of any merit on their part. You know, it was done even though they were disobedient at times. Psalm 78, 38 says, speaking of God, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up his wrath. And Nehemiah, in speaking to God about the Israelites, said to God in Nehemiah 9, 7, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. 
but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. And when I read this last sentence, I thought, you know, wow, it it just kind of took my breath away because it made me realize that God deals with us the same way. You know, he is ready to pardon us. He is gracious and he's merciful to us. He's slow to anger. He's abundant in kindness to us every day. And he will never, ever forsake us. You know, and we have done nothing to deserve his great grace. And so we should be the most grateful of people and daily say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. But it's also interesting to note that no matter how wonderful God's grace is, it will not always be appreciated nor welcomed. Have you ever put a lot of thought into giving a gift to somebody and you wrap it up real pretty and you put a bow on it and you've just selected the perfect gift and then you give it to the person and they just don't seem to appreciate it, you know? And I have to confess to you that um, one time in my own life, I received a gift as part of a Christmas gift exchange at the uh, investment management company where I was working. And uh, I didn't know who gave it to me. It was all, you know, kind of anonymous. You had this little secret thing going on. And um, I received this small little package and was wrapped real pretty. And, you know, I thought, oh, I wonder what it is, you know. And so I, I opened it up and I looked in the box and... I was like, oh, thank you, a keychain. That's what I said on the outside. On the inside, I was saying, wow, really? A keychain? And with a little silver tag that said, coach? And I I thought, I'm a supervisor, but a coach? See, I didn't know what coach meant. I had no idea. I did not realize the value of the gift that I had received until a couple of years later. Shame on me. (laughs) And unfortunately, that's what happens with God's grace. There are people, and sometimes maybe even us, that we don't appreciate it enough. You know, in the Old Testament, for example, the grace of God displeased the prophet Jonah. You know, God called Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, and they were a ruthless and a warlike people, and they were the enemies of Israel. And, you know, God told them to go preach to them so that they would repent, you know. Also, the destruction of that city of Nineveh would have been a great victory for Israel. You know, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and, you know, it would have been a great defeat. But God told Jonah to go preach to them and to warn them of the coming judgment 
that they might repent from their evil ways. But Jonah, as we remember, you know, tried to flee from his assignment because he knew that according to Jonah 4.2, that God was a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. You know, Jonah didn't want the Ninevites spared. He wanted them destroyed. You know, he wanted them wiped out. And so Jonah foolishly fled to Tarshish, attempting to thwart the will of God. But by means of a storm and some sailors and a large fish, God arranged to change his plans. And eventually, as we know, Jonah did preach to the Ninevites and warned them that after 40 days, Nineveh would be overthrown if they did not repent. And they believed God's message, and they did repent, and God relented from his judgment. But you know, Jonah was still angry because he was looking at the situation from his perspective and not God's perspective. And you know, ironically, it was God's grace which also kept God from dealing with Jonah as severely as his disobedience would have required. And so we need to ask ourselves, is there a person in our lives that we want God to destroy, that we want him not to bless, that we want him not to forgive? You know, is there someone in our lives whom we are not willing to forgive? And does the thought of them continue to annoy us and make us angry? You know, we have to remember that forgiveness is not an option for a Christian. It's a command. We must forgive. Jesus said in Matthew six fourteen to 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And, you know, Jesus' words alone should be enough for us to be willing to forgive. Paul also exhorted the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. You know, God's grace is always ready to pardon. And we need to give each other that grace of forgiveness as well. Is it easy? No, not always. Is it possible? Absolutely, with God's grace. We need to ask God for his grace to forgive others and to help us to see the situation from his perspective and not from ours. And then step out in faith and forgive and watch God do wonders in your life. Because really, that's the real lesson we need to learn. Because unforgiveness and bitterness in our hearts don't do anything to the person that we're refusing to forgive but they do affect us. You know, unforgiveness and bitter, bitterness paralyze us and don't allow us to go forward in our walk with the Lord. 
They take our focus off of the Lord and they put it on that person or on that situation. They cause our hearts to be hard and troubled. And they may even affect our sleep or our appetite or our body. So if anyone here tonight is harboring unforgiveness in your heart, I really want to encourage you to confess it to the Lord, turn away from it, and ask God to give you his grace to deal with it. Just as we see God's grace in the Old Testament, the New Testament is filled with the grace of God. In the New Testament, the grace of God is characterized by the Greek word charis, which means gift, favor, blessing, or kindness. And it's used 156 times in the New Testament. For example, Acts 4.33 declares, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The word grace was also a common greeting in Paul's letters. Often Paul opened his letters uh, with the greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that grace always comes first and then peace follows because peace is the result of grace. Finally, the object of grace has always been man. You know, grace is not available to angels. Fallen angels cannot be redeemed, nor can they be saved. Their ultimate abode will be in that lake of fire, which Matthew twenty-five forty-one tells us was made for Satan and his angels. So grace is God's undeserved favor and blessing, which he bestows upon us because of his great love for us and not because of any worthiness on our part. So this brings us to the second question uh, we want to consider. What does God's grace do for us? Well, it does many things for us, but because of time restraints, I just briefly want to consider four of them. So first and foremost, grace is the source of our salvation. You know, grace stands in complete contrast to the law of Moses. The law of Moses had many requirements, many rules, many regulations. But the scriptures tells us that the law was a schoolmaster that pointed the people to the Messiah. You know, the tabernacle and all that it contained spoke of Jesus. And Jesus even told the Pharisees in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And remember that at this time they only had the Old Testament. But the epitome or the highlight of God's grace is in the New Testament is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the channel through which God's unmerited favor comes to us. And the Holy Spirit is the agent who affects God's grace in us. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1, 16 to 17 continues to say of Jesus, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one can receive grace apart from Jesus. And God's grace is something we cannot give ourselves because it is a free gift from the Lord. Paul declares in Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And as most of you know, the gift of salvation is a totally free gift from God through which we are saved from the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. And it also provides a way that we can enter heaven. We can't buy it. We can't do anything to earn it. And we don't deserve it. Salvation is God's gracious gift to us, his love gift to us. And we can only accept it by grace through faith in the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. John three sixteen to 17, which most of us are very familiar with, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then Ephesians 2, 4 to 9 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead to trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so salvation is obtained solely by believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Once we accept Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, he imputes his righteousness to us. In other words, he covers us with his righteousness and he presents us to the Father as holy, meaning set apart for God's use, as blameless, meaning without blemish, for Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid our sin debt in full, and as irreproachable in his sight, meaning free from accusations. When believers stand before the Father, covered in Jesus' imputed righteousness, all the Father sees is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so if there's anyone here tonight who would like to receive God's free gift of salvation, all you have to do is say a short prayer. Ask God to forgive you of all your sins. Ask Jesus to come into your heart as your Lord and Savior and ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. And then find a good Bible teaching church and start reading the Bible to get to know who God is and start spending time with him in prayer. And as long as you abide in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will begin to grow you into that godly woman that God desires you to be. 
Secondly, God's grace is the source of our justification. Romans 3.24 tells us that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When we accept God's free gift of salvation, we become born again to a new life in Christ. Our old self passes away and we become new creations. And as a result, we're seen in the eyes of God as justified, meaning that God grants us a standing before him just as if we had never sinned. Jesus paid our sin debt in full on the cross. And just before he died, he uttered the word to telestai, meaning it is finished. And what was finished? The full atonement for our sins. It's also interesting to note that the word to telestai was also written on business documents or receipts in the New Testament times to show that a bill had been paid in full. Ephesians 1.7 says, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Pastor Chuck in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything, says, in Christ I have an absolutely perfect righteous standing before God. That doesn't mean that I am a perfect man, not by a long shot. It means that Jesus is perfect and I have his righteousness credited to my account because of my faith in him. God's grace doesn't change when I'm depressed or wrong or angry. It is a flowing relationship that is steady and always present. He loves me when I am sweet, and he loves me when I am mean. How good it is to know the grace of God. Thirdly, grace is the source of our gifts. God freely gives to each one of us gifts to be used in the church for his glory and not ours. Gifts to be used in reaching the lost through the sharing of the gospel and gifts to be used in ministering to, we, to one another. Paul said in Romans twelve six to 8, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or if ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortations, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And James tells us in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And so we need to remember that every gift, every talent, every ability we have is by the grace of God who loves us so much and he wants to bless us and use us in his kingdom and for his glory. Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 4.10, he says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold, meaning diverse, grace of God. Fourthly, grace is the source of our strength. In the Old Testament, we see God's grace at work to provide strength to his people. Moses in Exodus 15.2 declared, The Lord is my strength and song. 
God told Joshua in Joshua 1.9, Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And King David many times, especially in the Psalms, reveals his dependence upon God's grace for strength. In Psalm 29.11, David declares, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. In Psalm 28.7, David says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. In the New Testament, Jesus, more than anyone, knew that the Christian life and ministry and service take strength. You know, it's ironic that in one sense, the Christian life is not for weaklings. Yet only those who humble themselves and recognize their weaknesses can become strong, strong in the Lord, strong by the grace of God. Proverbs 3.34 tells us that God gives grace to the humble. And James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, our strength to serve the Lord and others does not come from our own strength. It is not human, it's not fleshly. Our strength is found in the grace of God through Jesus. And that's why Paul declared in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, Paul was totally dependent upon the Lord for his strength. And since Jesus is the channel through which grace comes, there's no other source to give us the strength to overcome the world with its trials and temptations and death. And that's why Paul toward the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we need to remember that because God's grace flows from his immense love for us, his grace, like his love, is never ending. His grace is immeasurable. So don't think that you're going to, um, you know, he's going to run out before he can fill you up. He won't. He's got way, way more grace than we can even ask for. So we can be confident that we can, um, that we shall never face anything here on earth, which his grace is not sufficient for us to handle. And that's why the Lord told Paul when Paul asked three times that the thorn in his flesh be removed. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So whatever you may be going through tonight in your life, sickness, loss of a family member or a friend, a betrayal, marriage problems, financial problems, difficulties in your walk with the Lord, whatever it may be, know and believe that Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. And that he is able to give you the strength to get through any situation. And this brings us to the last question we want to consider. How is grace evidenced in our lives? Well, grace is to be acted upon by way of commands to the believer. And I want us to look at four of those commands, which should be evidenced in our lives. First, we're to stand in grace. Paul told the Romans in Romans 1, 
excuse me, Romans uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, standing in grace means that we've received the gift of salvation, and because we've been justified by faith, we now stand continuously in God's unmerited favor. And the word stand here denotes the meaning of standing firm, standing steadfast. Standing in grace reassures us that through Jesus, God's attitude toward us is one of favor, that he looks upon us with joy and pleasure. And because we stand in God's grace, we can have peace in our hearts. David Goodzik, um, Calvary Chapel pastor in Santa Barbara, said in his commentary on this verse, Standing in grace means that I don't have to prove I am worthy of God's love. God is my friend. The door of access is permanently open to Jesus. My sin debt has been settled in Jesus, and I can spend more time praising God and less time hating myself. Secondly, we are to abound in grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all, sufficient, all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. You know, Paul here in the first seven verses of chapter 9 has been talking about reaping and sowing and about um, being a cheerful giver. And in verses 6 and 7, Paul says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, in the world, people usually give to get. But as Christians, we are called to give to bless. Just as God so abundantly has blessed us by his grace. And so in the same way, we are to share God's blessings to us with others. And notice the abundant language that's used in verse 8. It says, all grace, always having, all sufficiency, every good work. Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite commentators, said in his commentary, Terry about uh, this verse. He said, the universals in this verse are staggering. All grace, always, all sufficiency, every good work. This does not mean that God makes every Christian wealthy in material things, but it does mean that the Christian who practices grace giving will always have what he needs when he needs it. Furthermore, the grace of God enriches him morally and spiritually so that he grows in Christian character. In his walk and work, he depends wholly on the sufficiency of God. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. 
You know, God calls us to be those cheerful and abundant givers, sharing our time, our talents, our resources with others as needs arise. And God will always bless our giving back to us in one way or another. And Jesus is our prime example, for he gave his very life and his blood for each one of us. So we are to abound in grace, giving freely and abundantly to others, just as God gives us so freely and abundantly. Thirdly, we are to speak with grace. And how contrary this is to the world, the way the world communicates. So often people in the world just kind of vomit out whatever makes them feel good or whatever their emotions dictate without any consideration for the hearers of their profanity or their criticisms or their judgments or their sarcasms. You know, F-bombs are thrown around carelessly by young and old. We have a thousand words in the English, we have thousands of words in the English language, and yet some people stick to the same profane six or seven words to express themselves. For the Christian, however, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, to speak with grace means to bestow favor upon another by saying those things that are spiritual or wholesome or fitting or kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. And if you're like me, we're going, oops. As Christians, our speech must always be with grace because Jesus' speech was gracious. Luke 4.22 tells us, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. You know, we, we need to always be aware that our words are very powerful. Our words have the power to build up or to tear down. And as Christians, we're called to use our words to edify people, to build them up. Our words should impart grace to others, not hurt or others or bully them or belittle them or destroy their reputations through malicious gossip. And besides edifying others, Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And we know from cooking that salt is a preservative, which prevents corruption. And it also brings out the flavor in food. But it can also sting if you rub it into a cut. And in the same way, our words should preserve the reputation of others. They should seek to bring out the best in others. You know, we need to learn how to say the right thing at the right time and to think before we speak. And we also need to be ready, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Perhaps we should daily pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 141.3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. 
And fourthly, we are to grow in grace. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to grow in grace means to mature as a Christian. And growing in grace is part of this sanctification process. And sanctification speaks of both a position and a process in the Christian life. The moment we're born again, we're made holy, which means set apart for God's use. And then as we begin to walk with the Lord daily, we enter the sanctification process, whereby little by little and day by day, the Holy Spirit graces us with the ability to become more Christ-like as we yield to him. And there are three things that are essential in this process. We need to read and study God's word daily in order to learn about Jesus and learn to appreciate all that he has done for us in order to discover fully his grace. We also need to pray daily to experience that intimate communion with him. And we need to go to a good Bible teaching church in order to be taught more of God's word in depth and how to apply it to our lives. And as a result, we will become more like Jesus and less like us. We will never be sinless, but as we grow spiritually, we will sin less. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The attribute of grace describes the unmerited favor of God toward man. And because God is love, he delights in bestowing his amazing grace on sinners. And by his grace, we're saved from the eternal penalty that our sins deserve. By his grace, we can stand before him justified. By his grace, we are strengthened in our walk with him. By his grace, we can stand steadfast, knowing that we stand continuously in his favor. By his grace, we can be cheerful givers, desiring to bless others as he blesses us. By his grace, we can learn to speak graciously. By his grace, we can grow to become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And by his grace, we can do and receive so much more. You know, we need always to remember that God's grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And we need to always be grateful for all that he does for us every single day by his grace. And so I encourage you, let us continue to walk humbly before our great and gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' mighty name, Lord. And I just thank you, Father, for this study. I thank you that you are a gracious, amazingly gracious God. Father, I thank you for your many blessings in our lives, Lord. Every day, every moment, Father, you are constantly blessing us. You are indeed a good, good Father. And Lord, I just um, ask for these ladies that are here tonight and for those who couldn't come, Lord, that you would just continue to apply your word to their hearts, Lord, and their minds. Change us, Father. 
Help us to become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And I ask for traveling mercies for each and every woman here present, Lord. Keep us safe if it's still raining, Lord. And uh, just help us to have a greater attitude of gratitude, Lord, to you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.